Section 1 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. A Narrative History of Music. The Regeneration of the Opera. Part 1. While the deep, quiet stream of Bach's genius flowed under the bridges all but unnoticed, the marts and highways of Europe were a babel of operatic intrigue and artistic shams. Handel in England was running the course of his triumphal career, which luckily forced him into the tracks of a new art form. On the continent, meantime, Italian opera reached at once its most brilliant and most absurd epoch under the leadership of Hass and Porpora. Even Rameau, the founder of modern harmonic science, did not altogether keep aloof from its influence while perpetuating the traditions of Lully in Paris. Vocal virtuosi continued to set the musical fashions of the age. The artificial soprano was still a force to which composers had to submit. Indeed, artificiality was the keynote of the century. The society of the 18th century was primarily concerned with the pursuit of sensuous enjoyment. In Italy, especially, quote, the cosmic forces existed but in order to serve the endless divertissement of superficial and brainless beings, in whose eyes the sun's only mission was to illumine picturesque cavalcades and water parties, as that of the moon was to touch with trembling ray the amorous forest glades. Monnier's vivid pen picture of eighteenth century Venetian society applies with allowance made for change of scene and local colour, to all the greater Italian cities. Quote, what equivocal figures, what dubious pasts, law of Mississippi bubble fame, lives by gambling, as does the Chevalier des Jardins, his brother in the Bastille, his wife in a lodging-house, the Count de Bonneval, turbaned, sitting on a rug, with legs crossed, worships Allah, carries on far-reaching intrigues, and is poisoned by the Turks. Lord Baltimore, travelling with his physician and a seraglio of eight women, with a pair of negro guards, Ange Goudard, a wit, a cheat at cards, a police spy and perjurer, rascally, bold, and ugly, and his wife Sarah, once a servant in a London tavern, marvellously beautiful, who receives the courtly world at her palace in Pausilippo near Naples, and subjugates it with her charm, disguised maidens, false princes, fugitive financiers, literary blacklegs, Greeks, chevaliers of all industries, wearers of every order, splenetic grand seigneurs, and the kings of Voltaire's candide. Of such is the Italian society of the eighteenth century composed. Music in this artificial atmosphere, could only flatter the sense of hearing without appealing to the intelligence, excite the nerves, and occasionally give a keener point to voluptuousness by dwelling on a note of elegant sorrow or discreet religiousness. The very church, according to Dittersdorf, had become a musical boudoir, the convent a conservatory. As for the opera, it could not be anything but a lounge for the idle public. The Neapolitan school, which reigned supreme in Europe, provided just the sort of amusement demanded by that public. 
It produced scores of composers who were hailed as maestri today and forgotten tomorrow. Hundreds of operas appeared, but few ever reached publication. Their nature was as ephemeral as the public's taste was fickle, and a success meant no more to a composer than new commissions to turn out operas for city after city, to supply the insatiate thirst for novelty. The manner in which these commissions were carried out is indicative of the result. Composers were usually given a libretto not of their choosing. The recitatives, which constituted the dramatic groundwork, were turned out first and distributed among the singers. The writing of the arias was left to the last, so that the singers' collaboration or advice could be secured, for upon their rendition the success of the whole opera depended. They were indeed written for the singers, the particular singers of the first performance, and in such a manner that their voices might show to the best advantage. As Leopold Mozart wrote in one of his letters, they made the coat to fit the wearer. The form which these operas took was an absolute stereotype, a series of more or less disconnected recitatives and arias, usually of the da capo form, strung together by the merest thread of a plot. It was a concert in costume rather than the drama in music, which was the original conception of opera in the minds of its inventors. Pietro Metastasio, the most prolific of librettists, was eminently the purveyor of texts for these operas, just as Rinuccini, the idealist, had furnished the poetic basis for their nobler forerunners. Metastasio's inspiration flowed freely, both in lyrical and emotional veins, but, quote, the brilliancy of his florid rhetoric stifled the cry of the heart, unquote. His plots were overloaded with the vapid intrigues that pleased the taste of his contemporaries, with quasi-pathetic characters, with passionate climaxes and explosions. His popularity was immense. He could count as many as forty editions of his own works, and among his collaborators were practically all the great composers, from Handel to Gluck and Timorosa. As personifying the elements which sum up the opera during this, its most irrational period, we may take two figures of extraordinary eminence, Nicola Porpora and Johann Adolf Hasse. 1. Nicola Porpora, 1686-1766, while prominent in his own day as composer, conductor, and teacher, among his pupils was Joseph Haydn, is known to history chiefly by his achievements as a singing master, perhaps the greatest that ever lived. The art of bel canto, that exaltation of the human voice for its own sake, which in him reached its highest point, was doubtless the greatest enemy to artistic sincerity and dramatic truth, the greatest deterrent to operatic progress in the eighteenth century. Though possessed of ideals of intrinsic beauty, sensuousness of tone, dynamic power, brilliance, and precision like that of an instrument, this art would today arouse only wonder, not admiration. Porpora understood the human voice in all its peculiarities. He could produce by sheer training singers who, like Farinelli, Sinesino, Caffarelli, were the wonder of the age. By what methods his results were reached, we have no means of knowing, for his secret was never committed to writing, but his method was most likely empirical, as distinguished from the scientific or anatomical methods of today. 
It was told that he kept Caffarelli for five or six years to one page of exercises, and then sent him into the world as the greatest singer of Europe, a story which, though doubtless exaggerated, indicates the purely technical nature of his work. Porpora wrote his own vocalizzi, and though he composed in every form, all of his works appear to us more or less like solfeggi. His cantatas for solo voice and harpsichord show him at his best as a master of the florid Italian vocal style, with consummate appreciation of the possibilities of the vocal apparatus. His operas, of which he wrote no less than fifty-three, are for the most part tedious, conventional, and overloaded with ornament, in every way characteristic of the age. The same is true, in some measure, of his oratorios, numerous church compositions and chamber works, all of which show him to be hardly more than a thoroughly learned and accomplished technician. But Porpora's fame attracted many talented pupils, including the brilliant young German Hasse, 1699-1783, mentioned above, who, however, quickly forsook him in favor of Alessandro Scarlatti, a slight which Porpora never forgave, and which served as a motive for a lifelong rivalry between the two men. Hasse, originally trained in the tradition of the Hamburg Opera and its Brunswick offshoot, here he was engaged as a tenor, where he had made his debut with his only German opera, Antiochus, quickly succumbed to the powerful Italian influence. The Italians took kindly to him, and after his debut in Naples with Tigrane, 1773, surnamed him Il Caro Sassone. His marriage with the celebrated Faustina Bordoni linked him still closer to the history of Italian opera, for in the course of his long life, which extends into the careers of Haydn and Mozart, he wrote no less than seventy operas, many of them to texts by the famed Metastasio, and most of them vehicles for the marvellous gifts of his wife. While she aroused the enthusiasm of audiences throughout Europe, he enjoyed the highest popularity of any operatic composer through half a century. Together they made the opera at Dresden, whither Hasse was called in 1731 as royal Kapellmeister, the most brilliant in Germany, one that even Bach, as we have seen, was occasionally beguiled into visiting. Once Hasse was persuaded to enter into competition with Handel in London, 1733, the operatic capital of Europe, where Faustina, seven years before, had vanquished her great rival Cuzzoni and provided the chief operatic diversion of the Handel regime to the tune of two thousand pounds a year. Only the death of August the Strong in 1763 ended the Hasse's reign in Dresden, where during the bombardment of 1760, Hasse's library and most of the manuscripts of his works were destroyed by fire. What remains of them reveals a rare talent and a consummate musicianship, which had it not been employed so completely in satisfying the prevailing taste and propitiating absurd conventions, might still appeal with the vitality of its harmonic texture and the beauty of its melodic line. Much of the polyphonic skill and the spontaneous charm of a Handel is evident in these works, but they lack the breadth the grandeur and the seriousness that distinguish the work of his great compatriot. Overabundance of success militates against self-criticism, which is the essential quality of genius, and Hasse's success was not, like Handel's, dimmed by the changing taste of a surfeited public. Hasse's operas signalize at once the high watermark of brilliant achievement in an art form now obsolete and the ultimate degree of its fatuousness.
Hasse and Porpora, then, were the leaders of those who remained true to the stereotyped form of opera, the singer's opera, whose very nature precluded progress. They and a host of minor men, like Francesco Feo, Leonardo Vinci, Pasquale Caffaro, were enrolled in a party which resisted all ideas of reform, and their natural allies in upholding absurd conventions were the singers, that all-powerful race of virtuosi, the impresarios and all the great tribe of adherents who derived a lucrative income from the system. Against these formidable forces, the undercurrent of reform, both musical and dramatic, felt from the beginning of the century, could make little head. The protests of men like Benedetto Marcello, whose satire Il Teatro alla Moda appeared in 1722, were voices crying in the wilderness. Yet reform was inevitable, a movement no less momentous than when the Florentine reform of 1600 was underway, the great process of crystallization and refinement which was to usher in that most glorious era of musical creation known as the classic period. Like the earlier reform, it signified a reaction against technique, against soulless display of virtuosity, a tendency toward simplicity, subjectivity, directness of expression, a return to nature. Though much of the pioneer work was done by composers of instrumental music whose discussion must be deferred to the next chapter, the movement had its most spectacular manifestations in connection with opera, and in that aspect is summed up in the work of Gluck, the outstanding personality in the second half of the 18th century. In the domain of absolute music, it saw its beginnings in the more or less spontaneous efforts of instrumentalists like Fasch, Fürster, Benda, and Johann Stamitz. First among those whose initiative was felt in both directions, we must name Giovanni Battista Pergolesi, the young Neapolitan who, born in 1710, had his brilliant artistic career cut short at the premature age of 26. 2. Pergolesi was the pupil of Greco, Durante, and Feo at the Conservatorio dei Poveri at Naples, where a biblical drama and two operas from his pen were performed in 1731, without arousing any particular attention, but a solemn mass which he was commissioned to write by the city of Naples in praise of its patron saint, and which was performed upon the occasion of an earthquake, brought him sudden fame. The commission probably came to him through the good offices of Prince Stigliano, to whom he dedicated his famous trio sonatas. These sonatas, later published in London, brought an innovation which had no little influence upon contemporary composers, namely the so-called cantabile, or singing allegro, as the first movement. Riemann, who has edited two of them, calls attention to the richly developed sonata form of the first movement of the G major trio especially, of which the works of Fasch, Stamitz, and Gluck are clearly reminiscent. Quote, the altogether charming, radiant melodies of Pergolesi are linked with such conspicuous, forcible logic in the development of the song-like theme, always in the upper voice, that we are not surprised by the attention which the movement aroused. We are evidently face to face with the beginning of a totally different manner of treatment in instrumental melodies, which I would like to call a transplantation of the aria style to the instrumental field. End quote. We shall have occasion to refer to this germination of a new style later on. At present we must consider another of Pergolesi's important services to art, the creation of the opera buffa. 
we have had occasion to observe in another chapter the success of the Beggar's Opera in England in 1723, which hastened the failure of the London Academy under Handel's management. Vulgar as it was, this novelty embodied the same tendency toward simplicity which was the essential element of the impending reform. It was near to the people's heart, and there found a quick response. This ballad opera, as it was called, was followed by many imitations, notably Coffey's The Devil to Pay, or The Wives Metamorphosed, 1733, which later produced in Germany, was adapted by Stantfus, 1752, and Johann Adam Hiller, 1765, and thus became the point of departure for the German Singspiel. This, in turn, reacted against the popularity of Italian opera in Germany. The movement had its Italian parallel in the fashion for the so-called intermezzi, which composers of the Neapolitan school began very early in the century to interpolate between the acts of their operas, as in an earlier period they had been interpolated between the acts of the classic tragedies. Unlike these earlier spectacular diversions, the later intermezzi were comic pieces that developed a continuous plot independent of that of the opera itself, an anomalous mixture of tragedy and comedy which must have appeared ludicrous at times even to eighteenth-century audiences. These artistic trifles were, however, not unlikely, in their simple and unconventional spontaneity, to have an interest surpassing that of the opera proper. Such was the case with La Serva Padrona, which Pergolesi produced between the acts of his opera, Il Pigionier, 1733. This graceful little piece made so immediate an appeal that it completely overshadowed the serious work to which it was attached, and indeed all the other dramatic works of its composer, whose fame today rests chiefly upon it, and the immortal Stabat Mater, which was his last work. La Serva Padrona is one of the very few operatic works of the century that are alive today. An examination of its contents quickly reveals the reason, for its pages breathe a charm, a vivacity, a humour which we need not hesitate to call Mozartian. Indeed, it leaves little doubt in our minds that Mozart, born twenty-three years later, must have been acquainted with the work of its composer. At any rate, he, no less than Guglielmi, Pacini, Paesiello, and Timarosa, the chief representatives of the opera buffa, are indebted to him for the form, since as the first intermezzo opera capable of standing by itself, it was afterwards so produced in Paris, it must be regarded as the first real opera buffa. Most of the later Neapolitans, in fact, essayed both the serious and comic forms, not unmindful of the popular success which the latter achieved. It became in time a dangerous competitor to the conventionalized opera seria, as the ballad opera, and the Singspiel did in England and Germany, and the Opera Buffon was to become in France. Its advantage lay in its freedom from the traditional operatic limitations. It might contain an indiscriminate mixture of arias, recitatives, and ensembles. Its dramatis personae were a flexible quantity. Moreover, it disposed of the male soprano, favouring the lower voices, especially basses, which had been altogether excluded from the earlier operas. Hence it brought about a material change in conditions with which composers had thus far been unable to cope. In it the stereotyped da capo aria yielded its place to more flexible forms. One of its first exponents, Niccolo Logroschino, introduced the animated ensemble finale with many movements, 
which was further developed by his successors. These wholesome influences were soon felt in the serious opera as well. It adopted especially the finale and the more varied ensembles of the opera buffa, though lacking the spicy paradistical element and the variegated voices of its rival. Thus, in the works of Pergolesi's successors, especially Giomelli and Piccini, we see overshadowed the epoch-making reform of Gluck. There is nothing to show, however, that Pergolesi himself was conscious of being a reformer. His personal character, irresponsible, brilliant rather than introspective, would argue against that. We must think of him as a true genius gifted by the grace of heaven, romantic, wayward, and insufficiently balanced to economize his vital forces toward a ripened age of artistic activity. He nevertheless produced a number of other operas, mostly serious, masses and miscellaneous ecclesiastical and chamber works. His death was due to consumption. So much legend surrounds his brief career that it has been made the subject of two operas, by Paolo Sarau and by Monteviti. 3. About the close of Pergolesi's career, two men made their debuts whose lives were as nearly coeval as those of Bach and Handel, and who, though of unequal merit, if measured by the standards of posterity, were both important factors in the reform movement which we are describing. These men were Jomelli and Gluck, both born in 1714, the year which also gave to the world Emmanuel Bach, the talented son of the great Johann Sebastian. Nicola Jomelli was born at Aversa, near Naples. At first a pupil of Durante, he received his chief training under Feo and Leo. His first opera, L'Errore Amoroso, was brought out under an assumed name at Naples when the composer was but twenty-three, and so successfully that he had no hesitation in producing his Odoardo under his own name the following year. Other operas by him were heard in Rome, in Bologna, where he studied counterpoint with Padre Martini, in Venice, where the success of his Merope secured him the post of director of the Conservatorio degli Incurabili, and in Rome, whither he had gone in 1749 as substitute maestro di cappella of St. Peter's. In Vienna, which he visited for the first time in 1748, De Donne, one of his finest operas, was produced. In 1753, Jomelli became Kapellmeister at Ludwigslust, the wonderful Rococo Palace of Karl Eugen, Duke of Württemberg, near Stuttgart. Like Augustus the Strong of Saxony, the Elector of Bavaria, the Margrave of Bayreuth, the Prince Bishop of Cologne, this pleasure-loving ruler of a German principality had known how to sans Versailles to adopt the luxuries and refinements of the court of Versailles, then the European model for royal and princely extravagance. His palace and gardens were magnificent, and his opera house was of such colossal dimensions that whole regiments of cavalry could cross the stage. He needed a celebrated master for his chapel and his opera. His choice fell upon Jomelli, who spent fifteen prosperous years in his employ, receiving a salary of six thousand one hundred gulden per annum, ten buckets of honorary wine, wood for firing, and forage for two horses. At Stuttgart, Jomelli was strongly influenced by the work of the German musicians. Increased harmonic profundity and improved orchestral technique were the most palpable results. 
He came to have a better appreciation of the orchestra than any of his countrymen. At times he even made successful attempts at tone painting. His orchestral crescendo, with which he made considerable furore, was a trick borrowed from the celebrated Mannheim school. It is interesting to note that the school of stylistic reformers, which had its centre at Mannheim, not far from Stuttgart, was then in its heyday, two years before Jomelli's arrival in Stuttgart, the famous Opus I of Johann Stamitz, the sonatas, or rather symphonies, in which the figured bass appears for the first time as an integral obligato part, was first heard in Paris. The so-called Symphonie d'Allemagne henceforth appeared in great number. They were published mostly in batches, often in regular monthly or weekly sequences, periodical overtures, and so spread the gospel of German classicism all over Europe. How far Jomelli was influenced by all this, it would be difficult to determine. But we know that when in 1769 he returned to Naples, his new manner found no favor with his countrymen, who considered his music too heavy. The young Mozart in 1770 wrote from there, quote, The opera here is by Jomelli. It is beautiful, but the style is too elevated as well as too antique for the theater. End quote. It is well to remark here how much Jomelli's music in its best moments resembles Mozart's. He, no less than Pergolesi, must be credited with the merit of having influenced that master in many essentials. Jomelli allowed none but his own operas to be performed at Stuttgart. The productions were on a scale, however, that raised the envy of Paris. No less a genius than Novaire, the reformer of the French ballet, was Jomelli's collaborator in these magnificent productions, and Jomelli also yielded to French influences in the matter of the chorus. He handled Metastasio's texts with an eye to their psychological moments, and infused into his scores much of dramatic truth. In breaking up the monotonous sequence of solos, characteristic of the fashionable Neapolitan opera, he actually anticipated Gluck. All in all, Jomelli's work was so unusually strong and intensive that we wonder why he fell short of accomplishing the reform that was imminent. Quote, Novair and Jomelli in Stuttgart might have done it, says Oscar B. in his whimsical study of the opera, but for the fact that Stuttgart was a hell of frivolity and levity, a luxurious mart for the purchase and sale of men. End quote. Jomelli's last Stuttgart opera was Fetonte. When he returned to Italy in 1769, he found the public mad with enthusiasm over a new opera buffa entitled Cecina, ossia la buona figliola. In Rome, it was played in all the theatres, from the largest opera house down to the marionette shows patronized by the poor. Fashions were all a la Cecina. Houses, shops, and wines were named after it, and a host of catchwords and phrases from its text ran from lip to lip. Quote, it is probably the work of some boy, said the veteran composer, but after he'd heard it, hear the opinion of Yomeli, this is an inventor. Unquote. The boy inventor of Cecina was Niccolo Piccini, another Neapolitan born in 1728, pupil of Leo and Durante who was destined to become the most famous Italian composer of his day, though his works have not survived to our time. His debut had been made in 1754 with La Donne di Spetose, followed by a number of other settings of Metastasio texts. We are told that he found difficulty in getting hearings at first because of the comic operas 
of Logrestino monopolized the stage. Already, then, composers were forced into the opera buffa with its greater vitality and variety. Pacini's contribution to its development was the extension of the duet to greater dramatic purpose and also of the concerted finale first introduced by Logrescino. We shall meet him again as the adversary of Gluck, of hardly less importance than he were Tommaso Traetto, 1727-1779, the most tragic of Italians, who surpassed his contemporaries and followers in truth and force of expression and in harmonic strength. Pietro Guglielmi, 1727-1804, who, with his 115 operas, gained the applause of all Italy, of Dresden, of Brunswick, and London. Antonio Saccini, 1734-1786, who, besides grace of melody, attained at times an almost classic solidity. And Giovanni Paisiello, 1741-1816, whose decided talent for opera buffa made him the successful rival of Piccini and Cimarosa. Paisiello, with Domenico Cimarosa, 1749-1801, was the leading representative of the buffa till the advent of Mozart. As Hadow suggests, he might have achieved real greatness had he been less constantly successful. Quote, his life was one triumphal procession from Naples to St. Petersburg, from St. Petersburg to Vienna, from Vienna to Paris. End quote. Ferdinand of Sicily, Empress Catherine of Russia, Joseph II of Austria, and even Napoleon were successively his patrons, and his productiveness was such that he never had time, even had he had inclination, to criticize his own works. Of his ninety-four operas, only one, The Barber of Seville, is of historic interest, for its popularity was such that until Rossini, no composer dared to treat the same theme. Timorosa deserves perhaps more extended notice than any others on account of his Matrimonio Segreto, written in Russia, which won unprecedented success there and in Italy. It is practically the only one of all the works of composers just mentioned that has not fallen a victim to time. Its music is simple and tuneful, fresh and full of good humor. The eighteenth-century public based its judgments solely on mere externals, a pleasing tune, a brilliant singer, a sumptuous mise-en-scene caught its favor. The merest accident or circumstance might kill or make an opera. Today a composer is carried off in triumph to be hissed soon after by the same public. Rivalry among composers is the order of the day, Saccini, Piccini, Paisiello, Cimarosa are successively favorites of Italian audiences. In London, Christian Bach and Saccini divide the public as Handel and Bononcini did before them. In Vienna, Paisiello and Cimarosa are applauded with the same acclaim as Gluck. In St. Petersburg, Galuppi, Traeta, Paisiello and Cimarosa follow each other in the service of the sovereign, Catherine II who could not differentiate any tunes but the howls of her nine dogs. In Paris, at last, the leading figures become the storm center of political agitations. All these composers' names are glibly pronounced by the busy tongues of a brilliant but shallow society. Favorite arias, like Galuppi's Se per me, Sacchini's Se cerca, Se dice, Piccini's Se il ciel, are compared after the manner of race entries. Florimo, the historian of the Naples opera, dismissed the matter with a few words. 
quote, Piccini is original and prolific, Sacchini gay and light, Paisiello new and lithe, Gaffaro learned in harmony, Galuppi experienced in stagecraft, Gluck la filosofia economica, end quote. They all have their merits, but after all the difference is a matter of detail, a fit subject for the gossip of an opera box. Even Gluck is but one of them. If his Italian operas are at all different, the difference has escaped his critics. But all of these composers, as well as some of their predecessors, worked consciously or unconsciously in a regeneration that was slowly but surely going forward. The working out of solo and ensemble forms into definite patterns, the development of the recitative from mere heightened declamation to a free arioso, fully accompanied and to the accompagnato not followed by an aria at all, the introduction of concertizing instruments which promptly developed into independent inner voices and broadened the orchestral polyphony, the dynamic contrasts, at first abrupt, then gradual, which Jomelli took over from the orchestral technique of Mannheim, the ingenious construction of ensembles and the development of the finale into a pezzo concertanto, all these tended towards higher organization, individual and specialized development, though purely musical at first and strictly removed from the influence of other arts. The dramatic elements, the plastic and fantastic, which subordinated at first found their expression in laments and in simile arias, in which a mood was compared to a phenomenon of nature, then in ombra scenes, where spirits were invoked, and in similar exalted situations, gradually became more and more prominent, foreshadowing the time when the portrayal of human passions was to become once more the chief purpose of opera. End of section one, read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2021.